Channing, and I'm Elise, and this is the Faithful Feminist Podcast. We focus on feminist interpretation of scriptures and follow the LDS Come Follow Me manual as a guide for study. We understand scriptures can be a tricky endeavor for readers, but we also believe sacred texts contain compelling examples of loving and liberating relationships with the divine, others, and ourselves. We hope you'll join us in exploring the problems and promises of sacred texts with imagination, critique, and celebration to reveal what we feel is the loving and liberating heart of scripture. While Mormonism, with its iconic floral foyer couches, is our background, we follow our faith and our God on the winding path of spirituality over institution and connection over condemnation. We are fellow wanderers, weavers, and doubters. If you found yourself feeling a little too faithful for some and not enough for others, welcome. We've saved you a seat on the soft chairs. This podcast is funded by our listeners' generous donations. If you'd like to support our work, connect with us on Patreon or on our website at www.thefaithfulfeminist.com. We are here today with a fantastic interview set up with author Catherine Knight Sontag. Catherine, we're so grateful that you're here with us. Thanks for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Absolutely. So like we said, Catherine is an author and a poet. Her first book, The Tree at the Center, shed a poetic light on her search for the divine during her first pregnancy and postpartum experience. Her second book, The Mother Tree, returns to the symbol of the tree as a roadmap to the divine. We're really excited and we're grateful that you're here to join us for this conversation about the eco-feminist and eco-theological implications in her work. All right. So Catherine, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, what you love, what you're working on? Sure. Yeah. I grew up in Mill Creek, Utah. So I've been um, sort of in Utah most of my life. And I grew up by the mountains, loving going up to Mill Creek Canyon and spending a lot of time up there. And really sort of from a young age started to love reading and writing and poetry specifically. And I really got involved <laughs> at a young age in Celtic mythology. Oh, which just... Girl after my own heart. <laughs> <laughs> I'm outing myself as a nerd from the from the onset. So yeah, so I, I really loved studying Celtic mythology and looking up tribes <laughs> and looking up uh, like a different legends and stories and um, mythologies. And so that was sort of something that uh, drew in my imagination and something I really loved exploring. And I kind of took that in my experience in the natural world and um, became a environmentalist in high school. I really loved, I was in the clubs in high school doing environmental activism and just really felt the strong desire to do my part to help the earth. And from there, I went on to college and did a degree in environmental studies and English, so two undergraduate degrees. And then went on a mission to Italy, came back and did my master's in environmental planning and landscape architecture. So sort of a theme of um, art and design and caring for the land and shaping sacred spaces has been ongoing since I was little. Elise and I share similar loves and interests for art, mythology, stories, nature. And so it's just so exciting to have you on. And I'm also 
really just impressed with all of the background knowledge and experience that you have in nature and nature conservation. And oh my gosh, I'm just so excited for this um, interview to unfold. So one of the other questions that I wanted to ask you, Catherine, is um, one that we've actually received on the podcast a lot too. A lot of our listeners are really interested in hearing about our journeys um, to feminism. Often um, this is called a feminist awakening. So in that spirit, would you be willing to share a little bit about your feminist awakening with us? I would love to. Yeah. And it was really unexpected for me. I I got married when I was 30. So a little bit later per our LDS standards. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had my first child at about 32. And while I was pregnant, I was really, so maybe I'll back up a bit. My master's thesis work was um, studying the role of the transcendent in landscapes. So I really looked at a few key archetypal symbols that we see repeated through space and time that are significant and sacred. So from a pre-modern to a modern to a post-modern context, and the tree of life was one of those symbols. And so while I was studying that symbol, I was finding more and more in different time periods, different mythologies and cultures, this connection to a goddess figure or a feminine um, spirit or or aspect to the tree of life. And when I was pregnant, I began to feel this crazy sort of revelation that as a pregnant woman, I was also a symbol. And I just kept sort of working with that idea and studying and and reading and realizing that the the connective power of the tree of life, which is to connect heaven and earth, was also in my own body. And that while, of course, I felt, you know, the normal changes, physical, mental, emotional, I was also sensing that I was a symbol. And that was something that was totally fascinating to me. Um, And at the time, I read Ursula K. Le Guin's short poetic prose piece called Woman uh, Slash Wilderness. If you haven't read it, it's fantastic. It's really short, but it really like gets to the fundamental connection between women and the land and how what is done to women, women has been done to the land and frames sort of the way in which culture has muted or silenced the feminine in the world. And it really hit me hard. And at the time, you know, I had my my first child, then I became part of an intersectional feminist book club, which was fantastic. I learned so much about that history that I was never exposed to in college, even, you know, as an English major. Um, Yeah. And so I just, I felt so strongly and so viscerally this connection um, and also just like trying to understand what it means to be a woman at a time of ecological unraveling. Like it was a very... Um, sort of poignant and uh, an interesting time to sort of have that awakening. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I think that I wonder if that also resonates in the title of your new book, The Mother Tree. One thing that we noticed in the introduction is that you write, while I have devoted some scholarship and years of study to this topic, the knowledge I hold most sacred comes from personal experience with God. And I think in the answer that you just shared, it does sound like you're kind of grappling with that experience of like transcendence or divinity within yourself through your own personal experience. 
And on the podcast, we also feel that lived experience is a really valuable source of knowledge and wisdom. So all of those things considered, would you be willing to share a little bit more about what inspired you to write The Mother Tree? Sure. Yeah. So I previously wrote um, The Tree at the Center, which were my poems about sort of, you know, kind of the way that I wove together meaning from my experience becoming a mother, all of the research that I had done over the years about archetypal images in the tree of life, and then that very sacred connection that I've felt since childhood to the earth. And from that point, I I really also, so there's a, there's a section in the tree at the center called the tree of ascent. And when I finished that book, the idea of the tree image as an ascension image just kept calling to me. Like I felt I needed to explore a lot more of it. And so I actually started an outline for this book and then got a call from Faith Matters, one of the founders there, asking if I would be interested in doing a book with them. So it was kind of this crazy timing when I was already thinking, you know, this needs to be laid out um, as a feminine path of ascent, because that is what the tree represents, is this journey from the underworld, from the roots, to the mortality, to the trunk, and then to the heavens and the branches. And this is an aspect of um, growth and progression and experience that is largely lacking from the very hyper-masculinized world that we find ourselves in. So it was kind of a crazy, like just alignment of timing and, and ideas that, that that happened. And it really beautiful too that like I didn't know when I wrote this book. So I talk about like the biological and sort of botanical elements of the the different parts of the tree and then go into the symbolism a little bit more. But at the time when I when I chose the title of this book, I didn't know there were actual mother trees. Like scientifically, there was this name for trees in the community that perform certain functions and has certain attributes. So that was kind of incredible to like find out. Um, yeah, so I, I did that master's thesis. Around 2013, I became familiar with Margaret Barker's work reading her books and papers and listening to her conferences and began to sort of see that there was this goddess worshipped in the temple, the first temple in Israel, and that it wasn't just a Canaanite pagan goddess, that the that ancient Israelite practice was polytheistic, that there was never a monotheistic um, religion and that we had sort of read that onto the text. And so that became fascinating to me. I wrote an article for the Mormon Scholars in the Humanities Conference in 2019 that was called The Mother Tree, Understanding the Spiritual Root of Our Ecological Crisis. So all of these things sort of built upon each other to, to finally get me to the book. And um, yeah, I just, I really felt like there was this need to sort of talk about the divine feminine in a way that um, was experiential, but also about that inner journey that only we can go on as individuals and that we come to the divine and we let the divine manifest manifest itself to us rather than having sort of preconceived notions of what exactly that is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. 
I do too. And I was even just um, thinking as I was listening to you share about all of these different origins of where this work comes from. It's based in your childhood love of nature. It's based in a love of mythology, which I think as someone else, like, which I feel like as someone who was also interested in mythology as a child, it kind of grows or inspires in, um, in you this love and appreciation for symbolism Mm -hmm. and the ability to kind of see um, repeating patterns or repeating motifs in cultures that seem to be disconnected or not connected because they are far away from each other or um, seem to be so distinct from each other. And I think that that also really echoes really well in tree symbolism too. It's this um, underneath the trees, you know, what we can see in the trunk and in the branches underneath the soil is this incredible interlocking network of roots that allows trees to talk with each other, um, to talk with the other organisms in the soil. I'm sure you know all about this, um, but I think it's just incredible to kind of see that also mirrored in your own process as well. Just all of these Um, ideas and experiences and information from um, so many different sources, just interlocking um, and interchanging and exchanging information um, and laying the groundwork uh, for the mother tree. I am just so, so thrilled. And as we're talking about trees and biology and just all of this incredible work, um, we, I kind of wanted to dive into or discuss um, ecofeminism, and this will be a term that our listeners are familiar with because we've discussed it on the podcast before, but I'm hoping that maybe we could pick your brain a little bit more on that. Um, do you have, by chance, a favorite definition or like a favorite go-to definition of ecofeminism? Yeah, I mean, the one that I sort of heard and read probably the the most significant to me um, and that is most memorable is is really identifying an existence of a unique and significant relationship between women and nature. And on that basis, it advocates specifically women's environmental activism to save the earth. And that comes from Julian Emmons Allison from her article, Ecofeminism and Global Environmental Politics. Um, and I just really love too that it's not just a static, it's not a static term, right? It means mm-hmm. that we're actually going to go out and advocate and be a part of um, speaking for the earth and speaking speaking up for the damage and the harm that's been done. Yeah. For me, as I hear you say those things too, I'm also reminded of like the overlapping and interlocking experience of oppression, right? So the oppression mm-hmm. of the earth is also over overlaps with and interconnects with um, sexism and the oppression of women. And so I'm really grateful to hear you outlining some of those things as you're, yeah. as you're responding. And like you've said, so for both of your books and even in your personal experience, this recurring image or theme of trees really seems to be at the forefront. And one of the quotes from the mother tree in particular that we were interested in is when you write, over the years, I found a thread of groves and trees running through ancient and modern revelatory experiences. I engaged more intimately with the sacred symbol as I learned about this, as I learned about its archetypal power. I finally grasped that the tree implores my soul to reveal its truest self. Okay, first of all, 
if if I could only ever read books written by poets, like those are the books that I want to write, that those are the books I want to read. So hearing this kind of like very poetic tone come through, it's it's in the whole book, but I think it's really showcased nicely here. But we were just wondering if you could share a little bit more about that last sentence, the tree implores my soul to reveal its truest self. Language is crazy, huh? Right. So <laughs> lovely. Reveals and reveals. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So it's just, and I, I'll get into it a little bit more, um, but from a young age, I was always drawn to the tree of life image. And it always seemed to be saying more than I could understand. And I think because I, I hadn't, I didn't have those pieces, those connections of the archetypal nature of the tree until I was older, but I sensed it. Like I sensed this very like thrumming, pulsing, responsive nature of the image. And I, it just drew me in. So I like I I say all these things knowing that there's something deeply mystical and beyond comprehension with the image, but understanding how it is um, an image of the soul has really opened up new layers of dimension and thought for me. And the idea too that it's so we have the tree as like a biological map of growth. You kind of from the seed to the full mature tree, like it maps a lot of the ways in which living plants grow and mature in a certain pattern. But then you also have the really extremely ancient mythological idea of the threefold structure of the cosmos. So the underworld, the realm of the dead, the realm of the ancestors, the, the living mortal sphere, and then these, the celestial sphere above that the branches represent. And so you have so many layerings of meaning. You have the tree as a map of the imaginal realm, like the tree imagination is a source of endless regeneration. So you have like this idea of what can my mind in connection with my sensory experience and my heart experience and my spiritual experience and my intellectual experience, like what what can my imaginal realm produce and what can it through like the eye of faith bring into being like bring into into presence so i and i think a lot of my ability to sort of resonate with that as a young child started with seeing the tree in the book of mormon and lehi and nephi's vision and then also as the seed in alma 32 that I I always listened to those stories and thought there's just there's a dimension here that we're not quite tapping into mm-hmm. that I think would really help us unpack these stories more and like have them be more vibrant to us if we could just get at the root of it. So yeah, it's just um it's I mean, if you're looking at like Jungian psychology, you're seeing the tree as a part of that collective unconscious. That it's just a symbol that just resonates with us um, throughout space and time. So it just has this really, it has this power, I think, because it it's saying this is what you could become, right? You could be, like your destiny is to become this eternal image that transcends and that thrives and that reaches into the heavens, that grasps the sacred and the profane at the same time that understands time 
and eternity that has this the ability through compassion and understanding and wisdom to be in and through all things. What I'm just noticing, even through this whole conversation, is just all of these threads continue to be woven in with one another. And that was one one aspect that I think you mentioned earlier in the beginning of the interview, but we also saw reflected in your book as well in talking about um, the mother tree. One of the quotes from your book describes the mother trees as elder trees. They, You write that they are, quote, the biggest, oldest trees with the most fungal connections and not necessarily females. And I really loved this image of a mother tree being an elder tree and not necessarily a biologically female tree. And so I was really excited by the implication of this in your work because I think, um, especially in feminist spaces, we are really interested in redefining or reimagining or hopefully eventually getting rid of really strict gender roles. And so having this image of a mother or an elder tree that happens outside, like it's a different language, it's a different framework than just like a strict biological definition. Um, so can you share with us a little bit more about how this image of a mother or elder tree might translate well to um, reconsidering, redefining, or eventually eliminating um, gender roles in our human experience? There's something just incredibly beautiful to me in this image of a mother tree who like, has survived at times millennia of experiences and stored that information in the roots and is able to sort of suss out what harms and what heals and to nurture its own offspring, but also the species around it. And to sort of have created this network of of fungi that communicates, that literally passes information and energy and chemical signals. And like you said, that's not based on sex. That's that's just the nature of the trees that live and survive and collect this deep wisdom. And so I think there's a lot to be considered and learned in the sense that nature gives us these examples of nurturing and interconnection and deep sensitivity and behaviors that we might typically associate with the feminine, but that we recognize we all need to participate in regardless of our sex or gender. Mm -hmm. There's ways in which um, deep wisdom, we all need deep wisdom and remembrance and interconnection and sex doesn't limit the capacity for holding wisdom. That there's a deep, there's a deep need, I think, for us culturally right now to really tap into deep wisdom and the ways in which forest ecologies operate is such a beautiful example to me of the way that our society could work and what it could look like and that there's fluidity there's fluidity between what one tree offers to another and in community we were just there for each other in whatever way we need to be, whatever makes sense within the context of the relationship that we're in. One of the things that I wrote down as I was listening to you, you had said sex doesn't limit the capacity for holding wisdom. I think that is a phenomenal line. And so to think about the ways that biological sex or 
socially constructed gender doesn't limit or even determine our capacity and also our need for holding wisdom and sharing that wisdom. I, I really like seeing those themes come out in your response. In the mother tree, you wrote something. It's just, basically, we're just spending the whole interview, like quoting your book back to you. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing we really liked um, was when you wrote, as with all things sacred, I have found the divine to be beyond the structure and confines of language. No language can adequately describe the holy. And as you wrote The Mother Tree, we wanted to ask what role did language play? Because Channing and I spend a lot of time in language, thinking about language, thinking about the limitations or frustrations about language, also the ways that language illuminates new concepts for us. So um, we're wondering if you could speak to that. And based on your experience, what do you feel some of the limitations of our current language that we use to describe the divine or try to talk about the holy are? What are some of those li limitations? The, the first thing I'll say um, in regards to culture and sort of the ways that we we like, I think it's human nature, I'll say this first, to sort of want to put boundaries and, and uh, limits and frames on things so we can sort of digest it and relate to it. Um, I think the work that that accessing the divine like invites us to do like the work that the mother tree invites us to do is to sort of like let all of those go and trust that a direct experience with the divine will show us things we can hardly fathom and to be open to that experience I think is the purpose of life like to really be open to being shocked and awed and surprised by what is divine, that for me communicates that we've softened our hearts sufficiently. There's a quote by one of my favorite poets, Alice Oswald, that I think encaps encapsulates how I feel about words. She's talking about poetry specifically, but I think this applies to um, all sorts of writing. She says, trust that a poem isn't always what happens in the words, but is the trace that the words leave inside you as it vanishes. And I think that's what language does for me when it's working, when I'm really accessing its power, is that it brings me to sort of an edge of what I know and allows me to weave new patterns together. But sometimes it just brings me up against a silence. So I, I think ultimately it's very effective and, and helpful in the sense that we do, I think we do through language come to something deeper and, and a greater knowledge and a framing. But there's also this tension between the two, the tension between the mortal and the divine, between the seen and the unseen. And I think that tension, going back to your question about the tree image, I think that tension is within the tree image and that's part of its pull it's part of its power um so so there's definitely you know there's definitely that feeling of sort of awe and reverence at even trying to describe anything about the divine through language there's also for me a deep satisfaction to be able to say anything because the feminine has been mute and dismissed for so long 
by so many cultures and so many in so many periods of time. So it is somewhat satisfying to put some concrete language to it. Um, and I also I love sort of the irony too that perhaps the feminine more than the masculine, at least in my experience of it, is not ruled by boundaries or borders or narrow definitions. It is sort of a manifestation of the mystical and the sensed and the intuited and the unknown and the questions that are difficult to answer. There's a great quote, and I can't remember who said it now, <laughs> a famous feminist, I'll, it'll probably come to me later, but talking about like the space of the goddess is the space of questions. I love that. And I also, as I was listening to Catherine, was remembering um, Audre Lorde's essay titled Poetry is Not a Luxury. And she talks a lot about that very um, dark, mystical, that space that is also within us that seems to be, I think she describes it as shapeless and nameless and formless, and that our language can give shape and name and form to those concepts and those ideas that seem so far out of reach in order for us to be able to share them with others and therefore bring them out into the world to to create there's something that Elise and I often say on the podcast when we talk about God and we talk about the divine and it's just the simplest phrase, but I love it. We always say that God is always more than we expect God to be. And I feel like um, in this context, that also applies to that sometimes our language around around God um, can sometimes both illuminate and obscure Um some of what we're trying to get at. So it's always a grasping and in the grasping, something is going to slip through the fingers. But I like what you said before about um, being, there is something incredibly freeing and um, healing in being able to give a shape or a form, especially to concepts that have for so long um, been obscured by patriarchy, by sexism, um, and by other systems of oppression. It's really an act of love and devotion to be able to give them a shape or a form to have them shared with the world. And I think that that's a huge part of what your work does with both the tree at the center and with the mother tree. Another thing that's been on our mind is that we have recognized the ways that Heavenly Mother has been really dear to the heart of many Latter-day Saint feminists for many, many years. And it's often the ways that, and we recognize that some of the ways people can come to Mormon feminism is through exploring Heavenly Mother. And the theology of a mother God has really gained a lot of traction and increased attention like for many years, but at least in our space online, it seems like in the last few months, especially after leading up to and after general conference, there's been a lot of Heavenly Mother talk. And in that time, questions have arisen about the exclusionary nature of really traditional understandings of Heavenly Mother, which seem to portray this deity as cisgender, white, and a, as a heterosexual woman. So how can the frameworks that you offer in the Mother Tree provide pathways to perceptions about divinity, which include queer, trans, and non-binary folks. What do you think? I'm thinking as you were talking, as you were um, 
laying out the first part of the question, I was thinking about sort of the crazy amount of art <laughs> mm-hmm. I've seen just online, um, women painting pictures of Heavenly Mother and um, many of them trying to sort of shift away from the white, uh, at least a white goddess. I see so much and I and I don't and I hope this doesn't across, come across as critical. I see through those images more than I see the mother herself sort of where we are culturally as as females or as um, as women trying to begin to understand a mother when we ourselves are perhaps just beginning our development just beginning to understand what is feminine really. And so there's a little bit of um, disconnect for me. Like I don't, I don't really resonate with those images. Um, And I, and I don't, and I didn't feel in the writing of my book that it would be useful to get into sort of propositions about who she is. Um, I have seen, you know, some diversity coming up within the image of Heavenly Mother, like depicted in in some art. And I, I think the ones I appreciate the most are the few who are depicting sort of this, and sometimes it's the father and the mother or the masculine and the feminine as like geometric forms. Like that, that for me feels like fantastic. <laughs> And it feels like there's also a deep that that individuals who are portraying divinity in that way have a certain degree of reverence that they've cultivated and a certain degree of depth that they've cultivated that helps them see that, hey, like I can't just sort of create these images. Mm with anything but deep, deep reverence. Mm -hmm. So the book, my book is about experiencing the feminine, the divine feminine and knowing her through personal encounters and not about sort of trying to nail down certain propositions about her. And more than anything, it's about what she represents for me. It's about interconnection and, and eternal bonds and deep ancestral wisdom and ecological wisdom. And what I've come to find through my studies is that that Holy of Holy space that we talked about where the tree was located, there's sacred texts. I think it's the first book of Enoch, the book of weeks, um, the book of wisdom there's a there's quite a few texts that sort of hint to and 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 some directly state that this holy of holy spaces was where you come to know the paths of everything that lives and that's everything that's all of creation that's people who identify as queer trans non-binary they are all her children and so for me her gender or coming to at least explore the feminine aspect of deity can't limit her understanding. For me, there's a direct line from where every person is to her. And the way that I, you know, this is my experience as a woman, you know, and I am, I do identify as a woman and I do identify 
I'm, you know, I'm married to a man. Like I have all of my cultural layering, right? Like I have all those contextual frames. But what I've but what I've come to understand about her nature is very archetypal and I feel like it transcends those frames. And it's been like an interesting connected po- connecting point for me too to think about Jesus not being limited in his capacity to understand all because of his gender. Um, so, so yeah, I, I just feel like what I've experienced of her and what, have I, what I've experienced of the aspect, her aspect. And, you know, I, I, I frame this book especially as Heavenly Mother, as the Divine Mother, because that's my LDS traditional framing. Mm-hmm. And my audience is very much an active LDS audience. And I feel like it's hopefully a bridge at least. But for me, like I don't, I don't think of like the way I experience God sometimes has no gender context. And so there's just, it's just different (laughs) depending on the circumstance or what I need in the moment. And so ultimately this book, I hope the image of the tree is what, and what it represents helps us bring sort of this transformation path into reality that what is uniquely and ultimately divinely feminine outside the constraints of how we see the world and our limitations is about coming into the authentic self. And that's necessary for everyone, that the divine feminine really implores us to become that truest self as the tree, that tree image And to do that introspective work, to suss out what about our sense of self is false and what is true. As I'm listening to you share and talk about just the process and the thoughtfulness and um, the constraints in which you're working with for the mother tree, I, throughout this entire conversation, I've had my copy of the mother tree sitting um, next to my computer as we've been recording. And I've just been staring at the cover art. And I think also maybe a theme that I'm picking up on through our conversation and throughout the book is this, and I think we spoke to it earlier too, is this tension between um experiences and i think in the in that same way like there can be tensions between um even in our conversation we just had about language being able to give a form and a form can still be limited and talking about how the divine and the holy needs to be translated so that we can see it and experience it but also that there's something that's still not quite translatable. And I'm also hearing this, at least in my own body, I'm hearing in my own body this tension between my identity as a cisgendered woman and having experiences with friends who are non-binary, this tension between the way that I see the world and the way that they see the world and how sometimes there can be so much confusion and finding our way toward the middle in finding our way toward each other, but that that middle place is the place that we are in now. Like even looking at this figure of the mother tree, the branches and the roots meeting each other um, in the middle. And that's our place of reality. That's our lived experience. And it's always going to be complicated and messy and stumbling our way 
through language and through these constructs that are given to us socially and through the limitations of what it means to be human. And I really loved what you said just toward the end of um, your response in that this can potentially be a bridge. Um, And I, I think that those bridges are becoming more and more precious the longer that um, I'm involved in this work. So I'm, I was really, really so, so grateful um, to hear you say that. Perhaps one last question before we wrap things up. One of our primary, like one of the primary concerns we have about the use of gendered language to depict and to talk about and to discuss the divine is its harmful and exclusive effect on gender queer and non-binary folks. Because for many, speaking about divine masculinity and divine femininity feels really, really limiting as it reinforces the gender binary and gender roles by equating sex and gender as if they're the same things, but also um, really highlighting gender-specific traits as if they are innate and natural. So how do you think we can move past highly, highly gendered and limited language and frameworks towards something far more inclusive? I just want to, first of all, say thank you for asking this question. My deepest desire in writing this book was to provide hope and an, and a sense of deep love that um, I have felt at times in my life and that I felt um, working through me as I wrote this book. It was a very tender and sacred experience for me to write, and I'm still sort of in awe that... Um, <laughs> Like, I still don't get why why I'm, I wrote it. Like, I still don't understand <laughs> that. You know, like, I'm like, how did I get here? Like, it's just um, pretty, it's pretty humbling. Um, and I, I want, I want so much. And I, I really wrote this book with the intention of being as inclusive as I could. And I really hope that it can be read with, the love that I tried to weave through it. Um, I really feel like where I'm coming from, I think primarily with this book is that we have to, we have to really understand what this binary is before we have the wisdom to sort of see what's beyond it. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we've done that yet. I don't think culturally um, as, you know, Western humans on this planet in 2022 within the LDS church with like, I just don't think that we really know what it is. Um, And so I wanted to take some steps to widen our image of God and light of our image of humanity by examining our cultural paradigms around femininity and masculinity and ask us to go to the divine source rather than social constructs for a true vision so I guess I, I feel like right now it's we can't quite get past gendered language yet because we've spent centuries framing everything in the masculine. And I think we finally have a moment, perhaps a moment greater than any before, to value things from a feminine perspective. So... So I say that because I really believe in my heart and I know I'm just one human and I have limited capacity for understanding, 
But I really believe in my heart that understanding what is truly feminine and what is truly masculine is what will save us from patriarchy, that it's the leveling, it's the force that will change our hearts and bring Zion forth, which is essentially finding peace and balance inside the world of opposition in which we live, that hierarchies will dissolve and we'll be able to see as people are and to love um, as Christ has asked us to from the beginning with a full heart. So I, I see this as sort of like an emergent quality, I guess, that as we come to assess who we are, our identities based on that vision of the divine that only the divine can give, that all there, there will be all sorts of possibilities that we can't yet fathom. So I, I see essentially that when we look at these energies and, you know, we can call them yin-yang, we can call them light and dark, we can whatever, I don't, I don't necessarily, I feel like masculine and feminine are kind of placeholders to a certain degree. It's the way that, you know, it's to some degree we have framed things from the beginning. So there is a degree to which that is part of our psyches. But the idea for me ultimately is what they represent, like I mentioned before, and what the feminine represents in the world, which has large, largely been ignored and um, wounded and treated as um, non-important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I just, I guess in closing, there's this idea, and you mentioned before um, chanting this idea of like archetypes and the masculine and feminine not perhaps not resonating with with everyone, with people who are non-binary. Um, and I really thought about that and and really wanted to like honor that uh, question and that discomfort and that sort of, pain that you have felt in in regards to sort of having those you love feel seen and heard and valued and the the only thing I can really come up with is is that idea of what they represent thanks for sharing all of those things I think maybe what I hear in the most generous way is you saying, hey, gender and the gender binary has shaped our world and our understanding of ourselves and others, whether we know it or like it or not. And it sounds to me like you're saying perhaps this is one offering, one exploration of what divinity could look like. And you're also nodding to the fact that it's not the only way, that there are many other ways that people can connect and find and discover lots of different archetypes and multiple ways that divinity might make itself known in us and with others. Does that feel like accurate? Is that a fair statement to say? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think maybe the one thing that I would add is, is you know, I, I do think there is purpose and power in deity over space and time right manifesting itself as a mother figure because we all do have a mother like there's a space in all of our psyches where that icon or image resides and so it is a way I think 
to connect to all of us. Um, but I, but yes, like you said, it's not the only way. And I, I'm fascinated by so many different religious and spiritual traditions where, you know, there's a, there's a whole pantheon of gods and goddesses and there's, there's gods who change gender. There's gods that are non-gendered. I, I think we just have to be open to the ways in which they decide to reveal themselves, that we, we really have to, like I mentioned before, keep our hearts open to the possibilities we can't see because we are, we are, we're immortals. Like there's just so much that like that imaginal realm that the tree represents, that there's just so much to consider and to explore, but that this isn't, this isn't purely an intellectual exercise, right? This is about actually communing with that divinity and seeing what it what and how it wants to manifest itself and last thought sorry (laughs) no please go (laughs) I think we just we're so we're so mm, we're so quick to say the father and the son and the holy ghost and it's like some of our key scholar like scriptural text speak specifically about like councils of gods Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. there's just so much we don't (laughs) we don't understand because I believe like there's just endless expressions of what it could look like to be whole and to be united and so anyway there's there's so much unexplored territory I think in that regard but I I just really enjoyed so much spending this time with you and these questions and your um, probing into these these realms that are <laughs> really hard to even speak to at times. Going back to just the small snippet of phrase that I heard you mention earlier, which was forest ecology. And for whatever reason, that feels really sticky in my brain. Um, but one experience that I had yesterday, I was out in the mountains with a group of women and um, we were just spending time in nature and listening and practicing deep listening and recognizing all of the things that we could see around us. And we were being led through an exercise where we were meant to interact with just one being in nature. So that could have been like, for me, it was a bird and I'm really into birds lately. And I'm recognizing as a beginner that, you know, not, there is no such thing as the birds. There's like literally a bajillion, so many different species of birds. And I'm recognizing how much I don't know. And it's exciting. And I feel so pulled and drawn into being able to know a bird by what it looks like, know a bird by what it sounds like, know this bird's name, but then also get to know this bird by its actions and its attributes. And sometimes even if I look at the ones in my backyard, their personalities or what how they're interacting. And through this experience yesterday with this group of women, I was spending so much time interacting with this bird. And then we all came together to share our experiences. And what was so striking to me was my mind was like so completely absorbed in this bird. And then I got to hear that one woman had a very transcendent experience with a blade of grass and another woman had an experience with a tree 
and another woman had an experience with a box elder bug. And it just so happened through this group that we were able to see the place that we were sitting in with whole new eyes all over again. And I think that that's a theme that I'm seeing throughout this conversation and throughout the book too, is this very personal experience with the divine. And I think that that is such a beautiful offering that we find just all throughout the mother tree. And I'm so grateful for you coming on and being willing to have these conversations with us. I know we threw some pretty challenging questions your way, but I'm just continually amazed both at your grace and your extensive knowledge. So thank you for sharing all of that with us today. And thank you for sharing with our listeners. So I think our last question for you would be, um, where can our listeners find you? How, how can they can connect? How can they connect with your work? I have a website. It's katherineknightsontag.com. That's probably the best spot. My book is available um, on Amazon and also through Faith Matters Foundation on their website. It should be out um, in other stores too, local stores and uh, other uh, other uh, vendors, but I'm not quite sure where. <laughs> 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 I let I let the publisher do that work. I yep. don't know. <laughs> I feel that. I feel that. <laughs> but thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I'm just so grateful for all the work that you both do. And I know how time and um, emotion intensive it is. And I'm just extremely grateful that you have taken so much on and done it with um, so much thought and care. Oh, thank you. And thank you for being a huge part of it. We love you, Catherine. Yes. Thank you so, so much. We'll talk soon. Okay, take care. Friends, thank you so much for joining us today for another episode of the Faithful Feminist Podcast. We know your time and space is sacred, and we are so grateful to have spent ours with you. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd be so happy if you left us a loving rating on iTunes and Spotify so other seekers can find us. Financial donations support the many hours of research, work, and devotion to each episode, as well as the everyday costs of creating and publishing the podcast. You can support us on Patreon or through a simple Venmo donation and help us create a world where creators, artists, activists, and beauty makers are valued and paid for their labor. Find us on those platforms and on Instagram as The Faithful Feminists. We are deeply grateful for your kindness and encouragement. We love you so much, and we hope to spend more time with you again soon. Bye, friends.